On this podcast, we explore fantastical thinking, moral panics, conspiracy theories, and urban legends, examine the forces that shape our culture, and tell the stories that create the realities we share, and sometimes the realities we don't. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. Yes, he believes that beings from other planets have been intimate with him. I don't think it's going to yield its secrets to the frameworks of proof. Could have several visits a day. I think is straining credulity. You are deeper and deeper asleep. You will remember everything, and you will tell me everything. Uh, uh, I almost remember. You can remember. My friend Johnny and I spent a lot of time together in our childhoods, lying out on a blanket in the yard, staring up at the rural suburban night sky. We were discerning investigators of this darkness, who through practice could tell the quick miracle of a shooting star from the slow, steady motion of a satellite on its programmed path, fading in and out of view. Of course we believed in UFOs, in aliens. We were weird kids who went looking for ghosts and sometimes found them, who studied things like druidism and held haphazard pop seances inspired by teen movies, who desperately hoped to encounter the unknown any and every form. My whole life was a long study in the paranormal, the supernatural, the spiritual, and obviously it still is, but up until a few years ago, I approached it all with far less skepticism and a far more open heart. I was a believer, to be sure, but a believer in what? I don't think I could have told you. A believer in something more than what the material world has to offer. Some kind of larger intelligence. Something that shows us that we're not entirely alone in a cold, unenchanted universe. Sometimes I like to make fun of shit, obviously. But I don't find much funny about these stories of abductions. The frightening or the enlightening. They are completely unbelievable, of course. They're deeply weird, unnerving, sometimes pretty icky. A kind of primordial soup of Freudian Jungian imagery processed through a 21st century collective American unconscious. But where I expected to find hoaxers and charlatans, I instead found people that seemed very intelligent, level-headed, and sincere. But sincerity, of course, does not always translate to truthfulness. I believe that something happened to these abductees, and though we will explore different explanations and possibilities, I want to be clear that I am not qualified to be some singular arbiter of the one true reality. I know, I hate to break it to you. 
For part one, we'll meet some of the most important figures in the abduction movement, both the experiencers themselves and the people who studied them. Each one of these individuals saw the aliens and their agendas differently, and each of their distinct personalities are important to a larger picture, not just to illuminate the evolution of these modern cultural myths, but to find the humanity at the center of this extraterrestrial phenomenon. For part two, we'll investigate the sociological, psychological, and biological forces that may help explain, to a point, much of what abductees have experienced in the context of modern America. It's important to keep in mind that the majority of those who have memories of being abducted show no other discernible psychological pathologies. In other words, their mental health is what doctors consider normal. Astrophysicist and alien abduction skeptic Carl Sagan said this in his important book, The Demon Haunted World, Science as a Candle in the Dark. Quote, Whether what's going on is in outer space or inner space, that's the question. If you've been a longtime listener, you know that I'm just not a debunker at heart. I'm not a science snoot or an overconfident atheist. I call myself a flexible skeptic. What I want to do is to chip away the falsehoods that we can explain with the scientific method, but it's not because I want to whittle it all down to nothing. I would love to come away with something. So, after the next two episodes, we'll just see what mystery is left as we continue to figure out why we're here. And, even more frighteningly, to figure out if there even is a why. She feeds one day in seven on the unsuspecting, and soon she will turn into something that you will never be able to forget. No matter how hard and how long you try, fear her. In 1985, horror writer Whitley Strieber was having his moment. He had even been referred to as the next Stephen King. He already had several bestsellers under his belt, including The Hunger, a sultry story of bisexual vampire-human love affairs that just three years before had been adapted into a feature film and eventual cult classic starring David Bowie and Susan Sarandon. But by 1987, Whitley was less concerned with creating fictional monsters and more concerned with the real ones that had suddenly cut into his otherwise normal world, tearing his very reality in two. The cover of Whitley's first nonfiction book called Communion featured a genuinely freaky alien face on the cover, Large almond-shaped heads, small holes for nostrils, a lipless mouth with just the faintest trace of what seemed to be a smile. Its large black eyes stared out from grocery store shelves all over the nation, the cover image leaving a noteworthy impression on the American cultural imaginary. Communion was a very well-written book. The stories were vivid and rich in detail, 
totally different from most of the dry, research-centered alien lit that was available in the 1980s. It had a flourish, an emotionality, that allowed the reader to experience not only the frightful abduction, but the struggle to remember and then make sense of strange fragments of impossible memories. As surprising as it may be, the tone is extremely sober, as Whitley explores the intellectual, spiritual, and cultural angles of what could have happened to him, so much so that I've really been enjoying some of his insights. He never seems to be out of his mind. He never seems to be crazy. He just seems to be dealing with something that his mind cannot comprehend. Is it visitors, real visitors, in the real physical world? Is something coming to us from somewhere between dream and reality? From another universe? From out of ourselves in some way that we just never understood would be possible before? These things are all unknown. All of this had really started when Whitley awoke from bed in his cabin in the Catskill Mountains on a snowy December 26th 1985, a bright light out the window casting a glow across his face. The very day before, his brother had given him a Christmas gift after hearing about another strange experience that Whitley had had some time before. The book was called The Science of UFOs, and as he thumbed through it, what he read unnerved him deeply actually causing him to slam it shut in fear. And then, as he slowly drifted off into an anxious sleep, it happened. In his memory, whatever had taken place after he saw that bright light was a strange and almost aggressive blankness. After that night, Whitley had felt panicky, depressed, confused, as if something terrible had happened. His wife and kids noticed him changing too, becoming a darker version of himself. He was a self-aware guy, and he noticed it too, and he just knew it all had something to do with that light and that blankness in his memory. He could just feel it. When he reached a breaking point, he actually reopened that Science of UFOs book that he had slammed shut so tightly weeks before, and then actually contacted one of the researchers. The man received him warmly, listened to his story, and agreed that he did in fact have some kind of authentic experience, and he referred him to a hypnotherapist he believed could help. Many in the field of psychology at the time believed that the brain could block out traumatic memories from the conscious mind in order to protect us, which then needed to be remembered and processed with a therapist using repressed memory hypnotherapy. Otherwise, it would continue to manifest in constant anxiety and other emotional and even physical ailments. And Dr. Sigmund Freud, who pioneered these ideas, originally believed that repressed memories were the root cause of dun, 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 hysteria. And so, 
with a few deep breaths, eyes closed, relaxing into the couch, Whitley let his mind's eye play out its peculiar, disturbing scenes. Whitley remembered being taken by little humanoids out into a kind of medical room where the aliens probed his brain with a hair-thin needle and conducted other medical exams, telling him telepathically to stay calm, pinning him in place psychically to tell him that he was some kind of chosen one. He did not buy this line because he did not trust these creatures. How could he? Listen to this terrifying description of his main captor, pulled right from his hypnotherapy session transcript. When she opens her mouth, her lips are all... She hasn't got lips exactly, but it flops down. Her lips are floppy. I never saw her talking to me. You know, the, the truth is, I don't know what that is. I don't know whether it's a bug or what. Whitley would then remember this alien violently sexually assaulting him, and he would experience the now-cliché anal probe made mainstream by the first episode of South Park, and as you can imagine, not handled with much sensitivity. And perhaps Whitley needed a little sensitivity at this time, because, as he wrote in his book, The visitors persisted in my mind like glowing coals. I could see those limitless, eternal eyes glaring right into the center of me, themed to inhabit every shadow, to move in the course of the sky. He also talked of fear so raw, profound, and large that I would not have thought it possible for such an emotion to exist. Skeptics of Whitley's work were quick to point out the fact that he had a pretty good reason to write a truly salacious tale, to crank up the weirdness, you know, just a million dollar advance. It clearly didn't matter to the publishers who were chastised for categorizing communion as nonfiction. The company knew that a considerable segment of America was primed and ready to believe, as the popularity, the hunger for these paranormal stories had been materializing for the last two decades. And they were right. Both the hardcover and paperback versions of Communion topped the New York Times nonfiction bestsellers list for months. He would appear on The Tonight Show and Phil Donahue to promote his book and defend himself against the cruelty of the critics. Haters gonna hate, but regardless, two years later, Communion would even be made into a feature film starring Christopher Walken as author Whitley Schrieber. I don't recall them being human. I can't get out of this! You people, you sit there, you're in for one big surprise. According to Whitley and his several more nonfiction books, he would continue to have escalating interactions with the returning visitors, and he'd recover with hypnotherapy more and more memories of the childhood visits that he had long repressed. 
He told of a metal chip implanted behind his ear and of a secret school hidden in the woods of his boyhood where aliens taught him prophecies for the future and then blocked his memories with an alien power. His career would never quite reach the level it was at before he met these visitors, before he told the world about his experience in all its humiliating and baffling details, before he became the newest poster boy for alien abduction, an identity he would immediately regret. The truth was, and Whitley's very clear about this in his book, he didn't know what happened to him. He didn't even know what he thought an alien was. He just knew that he wasn't making all of this up. There had to be something to it. It all felt so real. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat, gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American and Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. And now, back to the show. That was a dream, Betty. The men in the road, I saw the men in the road. And then I saw the moon sitting on the ground. Dreams are dreams and reality is reality. We almost smashed up this car because you had a dream. Don't do that, Barney. Please. Don't shut me out. It was late in the evening on September 19th, 1961. And Barney and Betty Hill were tired. They were driving home to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, from a much-needed Montreal vacation. 
what they were driving back to, unfortunately, was a very stressful day-to-day, with Barney traveling 60 miles to and from his job, working the night shift at a post office, and Betty working difficult child welfare cases for the state. Not only that, but Barney was black and Betty was white, and again, it was 1961, three years before the Civil Rights Act passed. And then they used most of their spare time volunteering with their church and taking up activist causes for equal rights. Part of the way through their drive home, they sat down for a cup of coffee at a roadside diner before hearing of a powerful storm that had been following behind them. Barney didn't want to get caught in the wind and the rain, and he believed they could beat it if they didn't stop to sleep. And that's exactly what they did in the crisp autumn night, the headlights only illuminating so much, their small car otherwise surrounded by thick dark. That's when Betty spotted a strange light in the sky. Barney, the logical one, rode it off at first, and they kept going along the rural road. But the light seemed to be getting brighter, seemed to be getting closer, until it hovered directly above them, as big, Barney said, as a jet. Two hours later, the hills would find themselves 35 miles further up the road with no recollection of how they got there. When they arrived home, it was two hours later than it should have been, and it didn't seem to end there. They were experiencing strange impulses, confusion. They felt the need to take showers and wash something off. But what? Barney's shoes were scuffed. Betty's dress was ripped. Their watches had stopped working, and they would never work again. This missing time, as it's known in the paranormal vernacular, is considered the strongest indication that one may have been abducted. But Betty and Barney didn't know that yet. And it didn't really matter anyway. They had to shake it off and get back to their lives. But Barney would prove to be a little bit better at that than Betty, who began spending evenings in the local library, reading everything she could about UFOs and alien abductions. Not long after that, Betty would be standing up in church talking about UFOs. That's when the dreams started. Nightmares that seemed to explain what had happened during that missing time that neither of them could explain. A logical man, Barney did not at first consider Betty's dreams to be memories of any kind, but he also could not deny that he was struggling, and he wasn't quite sure why. He began therapy, not for what he believed to be a matter of the paranormal, but stress from both his job and difficulties with his sons from a first marriage, as well as some new health issues. Ones that seemed to arise with whatever happened that night. High blood pressure, an ulcer, and most strangely, a circle pattern of what appeared to be warts near his groin. Eventually, he'd be referred to a hypnotherapist named Dr. Benjamin Simon, who hoped his stress and anxiety could be soothed through deep breathing relaxation exercises. 
Dr. Simon's immediate assumption was that Barney and Betty's issues were stemming from the societal disapproval of their interracial marriage. Both denied this to be the cause, but he still requested to see them together as a couple. No need for you to be concerned. No need for you to be worried. You are deeper and deeper asleep. You are deep asleep. You will remember everything, and you will tell me everything. And so they sat together as Barney laid himself out on the couch, eyes closed, breathing in and out, focusing on a strange occurrence he couldn't explain, a blankness. Out of his mind's eye, a fantastical story began to emerge. He remembered pulling over the car, running out into the field with a pistol. He remembered looking at the light through his binoculars and seeing a row of 8 to 11 humanoid creatures wearing shiny black suits and hats staring down at him. They were psychically pinning the gun to his side. A voice spoke to him psychically, telling him to put down the binoculars, to put down the gun. But then Barney scrambled back to the car. He was certain they were coming to trap him and Betty. And inside the car, the craft hovered above them. They could hear beeping and buzzing, their bodies tingling. And then blackness. Barney's accounts under hypnosis seemed to match the dreams that Betty had been having, and Dr. Simon continued to regress both of them separately, and he began to see that their accounts still matched in some uncanny ways. They both remembered beings with large heads and wraparound eyes, not unlike the cliché aliens we think of today. Short gray humanoids that took them aboard their pancake-shaped ship, where they were quickly separated and then subjected to a series of alien medical examinations. They took various types of human tissue. Betty had a long needle inserted into her navel, apparently some kind of pregnancy test. A cup was attached to Barney's groin. They took a semen sample. All of this was shocking to the pragmatic Dr. Simon. The emotions expressed during the regressions, the weeping and the screaming and the shaking as the details continued to just spill and spill out of the hills. As impossible as the stories were, it seemed equally impossible that they were just making all of this up. They would have had to have been the best actors the doctor had ever seen. Just because he believed in their emotions didn't mean he believed their tale. In The Demon-Haunted World, Carl Sagan mirrors this sentiment as he remarks on Dr. Simon's taped sessions with Barney Hill that he got to listen to. He was impressed with Barney's level of honest terror when remembering his abduction experience. In order to show how terrifying these visions were, here's something that Barney said while under hypnosis. Oh, those eyes, they're there in my brain. I was told to close my eyes because I saw two eyes coming close to mine, and I felt like the eyes had pushed into my eyes. All I see are these eyes. I'm not even afraid that they're not connected to a body. They're just there. They're just up close to me pressing against my eyes. 
Author John G. Fuller teamed up with the couple and Dr. Simon to write his hugely successful book, The Interrupted Journey. And then the story would be made into a movie in 1975, starring James Earl Jones as Barney and Estelle Parsons as Betty, or as I like to call her, Roseanne's mom. Critics attempted to combat these fantasies with many different explanations, like the fact that the aliens looked a lot like those from an episode of the TV show Outer Limits that had played just a few weeks before, and not long before that, an episode of The Twilight Zone had featured leather-clad aliens. If they weren't lying, then perhaps this could have all been a dream in the middle of the night in the dark woods, after a quick roadside nap turned into a wild dream. Others said Dr. Simon might have been inadvertently encouraging or even implanting false memories in these sincere patients. Many others took the easy way out and dismissed it as a ridiculous, manufactured hoax. Whatever it was, it left a monumental imprint on what would morph into the archetypal American alien abduction. The enemy is now in sight above the Palisades. Five five great machines. This is the end now. Smoke comes out, black smoke drifting over the city. People are trying to run away from it, but it's no use. They, they're falling like flies. Now the smoke's crossing 6th Avenue, 5th Avenue, a, a hundred yards away. In 1938, little Bud Hopkins sat wrapped at the radio beside his frightened parents, all their mouths agape as the reporter delivered the most shocking news they had ever heard. Extraterrestrials were landing all over the nation. And not only that, they were killing citizens with heat rays and covering New York City in a poisonous gas. According to Bud, his family would not learn until hours later that what they had actually heard was Orson Welles' The War of the Worlds radio broadcast which famously caused a minor panic in a generous handful of gullible citizens. When he did discover that it was nothing but convincing fiction, it upset him tremendously. It made him mad. And he said that instead of drawing him to the paranormal, the experience left him with a strong skepticism about these visitors from beyond. It wasn't until 1964, when Bud was 33 years old and well on his way to an impressive career as an expressionist painter and sculptor, that he and his bohemian friends spotted what they believed to be a UFO over the dark expanse of Cape Cod. After that night, he just couldn't shake his questions about what on earth that could have been. And he became even more suspicious when he received a dismissive response from the Otis Air National Guard base. They just didn't take him seriously. And so he began devouring books about unidentified flying objects. And he joined the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. 
Bud would find some vindication when he heard the mutterings of a distraught bodega owner near his New York City apartment. They come down. They come down out of the sky and they scare you half to death. Huh, the man had said, looking down and shaking his head. Bud engaged him, asked him, hey, what's on your mind? And he told him a strange story of a drive not unlike Betty and Barney's. He'd been traveling in the middle of the night through North Hudson Park, New Jersey, when his radio started making strange sounds, and he spotted a large craft that had landed in a field beside him, complete with strange little men all around it that looked like, he said, they were wearing little snowsuits. In 1976, Bud Hopkins would write this man's story for the Village Voice and would solidify his new identity, eventually dubbed the Father of the Abduction Movement, as letters poured in day after day from others who wondered if they too had been abducted. Just one year before, a movie telling the true story of the Betty and Barney Hill abduction aired to millions of viewers, leading to a 2,500% increase in recorded accounts of alien encounters. And just one year after that, Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind would bring the extraterrestrial imagery into the mainstream consciousness for good. Skeptics like to point out that perhaps people were seeing aliens in their imagination because they had seen this movie. However, the truth is that those working on the film actually created a composite alien from all of the past real-life accounts. So, as these stories of alien abduction spread, Bud had no trouble finding people to study. He was unlicensed as a hypnotherapist, yes, he had no formal psychological training, true, but he claimed to have been studying the practice by watching professionals regress their patients to recover blocked memories for the last eight years, and he'd been tweaking the method and making it his own. He had rigorous criteria for those he would and would not regress, finding only those who appeared to have credible symptoms and stories. He did try to have integrity, and he always attempted, it seemed, not to lead his patient in what to remember, but to encourage them gently to remember whatever they could. He often appeared to channel that skeptical inner child that was still very angry at Orson Welles for that irresponsible hoax. But his skepticism only went so far. He and other ufologist hypnotherapists had taken repressed memories a step further and even began to believe that they may not be blocked by the brain, but instead by the power and at the will of the extraterrestrials themselves. Most of the abductees that Bud worked with had found him through his talks and conferences, or through his books or rare TV show appearances. While hypnotized, his patients often admitted through gulping breaths that they'd undergone invasive medical procedures, with long needles injected into their belly buttons, samples taken of hair, skin, saliva, feces, urine, sperm, and eggs. There was a wide variety of different sexual encounters, but hardly ever were they reported as pleasurable, but instead 
frightening, painful, and humiliating. The most extreme claims were of alien hybrid babies, ones that some abductees were later able to visit, which is nice. Bud started to notice that his patients experienced these creatures as beings without human morals, without emotion, without empathy. It wasn't that they were malicious, but he described them as a, quote, callous, indifferent, amoral race bent solely upon gratifying its own scientific needs at whatever cost to us. He called their work a highly technological colonization scheme in which women would be impregnated and the baby returned to the colony after it was born. They saw human beings as laboratory specimens in some ongoing experiment in extraterrestrial eugenics. They were particularly interested in human emotion because, by most accounts, they experienced no emotions themselves. To Bud, these aliens did not come in peace. He called their visits insidious, nightmarish, even apocalyptic, and he recorded it all in his 1981 book, Missing Time, documented stories of people kidnapped by UFOs and then returned with their memories erased. Uh, my feeling has always been that uh, they may be here ultimately for good purposes or be ecologically concerned or whatnot. They're doctors to heal the planet, but I don't like the bedside manner in the meantime. And I don't think that this is deliberate. I don't think the UFO occupants are intending it, but I've just seen too much pain to uh, indulge it with the idea that somehow it's going to all turn out okay. That's my basic okay. issue. Although the aliens did not come in peace, Bud thought that perhaps he could give peace to his patients, who had clearly experienced a real trauma, and he began connecting experiencers together through abduction support groups. One of those people that Bud helped was a famous horror author named Whitley Schrieber, who had contacted him after reading The Science of UFOs, who had seen that bright light out his window and then experienced that almost aggressive blankness. It was Bud Hopkins who would sit with Whitley, regressing him back to that night on December 26th, recording each session as they tried, together, to figure out what in the absolute fuck was going on. More after this. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. And now, back to the show. And I just asked them onto the stage, Bud Hopkins and John Mack. I also want to express my appreciation to Bud uh, for, well, I don't know if I really feel this way, actually. I'm not so sure I am appreciative that he introduced me to this field. I mean, it's been a lot of trouble, actually. Uh, um, but I have deep fondness and admiration for his pioneering role and spirit in this. 
In the fall of 1989, a mutual colleague would introduce Bud Hopkins to a renowned Harvard psychiatrist and author, winner of a Pulitzer Prize in 1977 for a biography on British officer T.E. Lawrence. John Mack had academic street cred, a lot of it, and when he first heard of what this loony artist was up to, he dismissed him, called him mad. But curiosity, or perhaps something beyond, magnetized John Mack to Bud Hopkins. And after he read through the hundreds of letters from abductees, he was fascinated. That real emotion, those bizarre details, the similarities between the events and the humanoids. Suddenly, the head of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School was a believer. Well, he wouldn't like me saying that. Let's just say that the head of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School became a very strong entertainer of the extraterrestrial fringe. John's mother, Eleanor, had died when he was just an infant. His father had been a strict atheist, a true academic in that sense, a professor of history and English at City University of New York. His stepmother, Ruth, was an economist who would read the Bible to him when he was young, but made clear that she was reading it only as literature, as an important cultural touchstone, with absolutely no mystical elements allowed. In the Mac household, the universe was unfeeling, unenchanted. Academia and science were the only thing remotely close to spiritual tenets, and for most of his life, John was content to be an unbeliever in anything that strayed from what could be proven. Before meeting the eccentric Bud Hopkins, John had worked alongside a famously skeptical colleague and friend, astrophysicist Carl Sagan, who we consider to be an uncelebrated hottie in a turtleneck. Together, they were trying to promote peaceful resolutions between the Soviet Union and the United States in order to disarm the world of such horrific, terrifying nuclear power. In 1986, along with 700 others in various academic fields, they walked side by side across a Nevada test site as an act of civil disobedience. But after John started acting like the wild stories of his patients could be true, after he began asserting that all this had some kind of scientific merit, he and Carl would begin to see things quite differently. There's no evidence for this. I just say that's not implausible. But to have several visits a day, I think, is straining credulity. I would think that, uh, that at least for the contact myths, that what's involved uh, psychology and theology, and not so much the physical sciences. After John's extraterrestrial religious conversion, Carl would become one of his most vocal critics. They still had respect for one another, and he even indulged some of John's wackier ideas, sitting with him wearing a blindfold and headphones, doing intensive deep breathing exercises. 
But as John, with all his impressive academic credentials, began regression therapy on patients of his own, after he started believing in the wild stories his patients were telling him during hypnotherapy, after he began asserting that these confessions had actual scientific merit, the two academics would begin to see things quite differently. But by 1991, things seemed to unravel further, and a mutual colleague told Carl that he needed to give John a reality check. So he drove out to see his friend. Quote, I tried to argue that on issues of this importance, extraordinary claims demand extraordinary evidence, and John would have none of that. He was quite content with anecdotal cases and his judgment that these people must be telling the truth because they are so extremely distraught. John had laid out his premise that the power and intensity to which something is felt can tell us whether or not something is true. Carl felt this idea to be very dangerous, noting that dreams cause extreme emotions, and yet we do not consider those to be material world experiences. Carl knew about false memories. He knew they could be as intense as real world happenings, that they could elicit the same emotions, that these fantasies could take on lives of their own and actually harm the patients. John, of course, disagreed, and would later say of alien abduction, quote, The phenomenon serves to break out of the box that Carl Sagan would keep us in. Perhaps the most impactful of John Mack's hypnotherapy clients, Peter Faust had worked with John to uncover quite a story, one that hit on all the finest points of the American abduction narrative. Right away, he began remembering, starting with his first abductions back in childhood. The next session, he would remember alien experiments that included a little black chip implanted in his brain. He also remembered having sex with what he believed to be female aliens as well. In fact, he'd eventually remember that he'd had an alien lover for eons. Doctor and client together came to believe that the aliens were making what John called a, quote, new breed or tribe, a hybrid form. He continued, Peter and other men and women like him appear to be playing a vital role, breeding with an alien or hybrid mate to produce offspring that would be able to survive in some sort of post-apocalyptic future. As creepy as all that sounds, in many ways it was a hopeful message to John. It wasn't just cold, calculated breeding. It was about helping the human race survive the environmental and nuclear collapse, that dark future that John had feared and then fought against. Peter eventually concluded that behind all the terror, he felt, quote, connected to something infinitely wiser and more powerful than I could imagine, that the phenomenon had some meaning that was greater than just me and my sperm sample. Bud sees the relationship as cold and different um, in his autobiography which he's sharing with me he wrote at the very first page he said the mystery of those cold creatures who have come here from god knows where subverting our truths and violating our planet 
Well, there is that element in the beginning, but in my experience, if you work with the terror with the person, you, you, you work with the mystery, that it does transform, that it does become more spiritual, that, that growth does occur. And sometimes there can be this bond that lasts throughout this relationship across these dimensions, and that this is, is a very deep, powerful phenomenon. In this same spirit of spiritual communion, John Mack would actually play a tape of Peter's regression therapy for none other than His Holiness the Dalai Lama, as he and several other UFO specialists met with him at his monastery in Tibet to discuss their intriguing work. His Holiness listened as a deeply distraught Peter's voice came over the recorder saying things like, they're taking it, they're taking my semen, they have control over my genitals. His Holiness sat politely and then inquired after the tape was done about Peter's general mental state. And of course, this episode would not be complete without a segment on The Oprah Winfrey Show. Do you remember when you were eight years old being abducted or when you were younger feeling this whatever? No, I had memories when I was an adult um, three or four years ago. And then in regression is when I went back in time, saw myself as a child having the abductions. So the only thing that behaves like that is real experience. Yeah, you say that it's trauma, trauma, that it's trauma. It's traumatic. Real experiences are the only thing that occurs like that. Psychosis isn't like that. Madness is not like that. Dreams are not like that. Fantasy is not like that. Now, if these are real experiences, what is going on? What's the source of these experiences? Yeah, that's the question. question. What's going on? On the episode, John looks like a true academic. Rumpled, tall, and thin, his argyle socks showing under the hem of his pants as he crosses his legs and leans forward. He speaks with his hands emphatically, and he's handsome, charming, cool, self-effacing, magnetic. Honestly, if he was still alive, I think I'd totally hang out with him. Like Carl Sagan, Harvard was less than thrilled at John Mack's new obsession that one could hardly call scientifically sound. Actually pseudoscientific enough to make it on The Oprah Show. He was a laughingstock, and it was affecting the school. Many academics wanted him kicked out of his position of head of psychiatry, and many meetings were held as to whether his work could be reconciled with the standards required of a Harvard scientist. But ultimately, the college respected his right to study what he felt compelled toward, and, as was the worry of his colleagues, his professional stature served to add serious new legitimacy credibility to a previously fringe movement. A movement that would, like so many others, fuse together with the New Age movement, the human potential movement, that attempted to fuse science and spirituality together to find some kind of truth in the universe. In 1992, Bud and John would reunite to produce the Roper Poll on Unusual Experiences. For their research, 6,000 participants answered five indicator questions. Had they experienced unexplained lights or missing time? Woken up paralyzed with an unexplained presence in the room? Experienced sensations of flying? Found unexplained marks or scars on their body? 
Well, in fact, 119 of those people did exhibit at least four of the five symptoms, a requirement for a potential abduction to be taken seriously by John and Bud. Even though that number seems small, it was a full 2% of respondents. And from that, they made the confident claim that 2% of America had been abducted by aliens, 2.7 million people. They also both made it perfectly clear, any one of us could be a victim and simply not remember it. All you needed were four out of five of those symptoms. And needless to say, with symptoms that vague, reports of recovered abduction memories continued to rise. It was the Roper poll on unusual experiences that would become the cosmic catalyst for a monumental television pilot created by producer Chris Carter, who had actually requested to meet with John Mack down at Fox Studios to talk about his work. Chris Carter would officially sell the X-Files pilot in 1992, using the Roper poll to show execs how popular these questions of paranormal influence were becoming in the mainstream. Even by 1996, Chris was still so enamored by the charming John Mack that he would actually sit down with him and one of his patients as he aided her in remembering her abduction. As most of his patients did, she wailed and sobbed with that authentic kind of terror. And so we can see how John and Bud's influence is woven into the very fabric of the show that pop-culturalized alien lore into an object of mass consumption, starring two smoldering FBI agents, the skeptic and the believer, or at least someone who wanted to believe. But let's remember, too, that Betty and Barney and Bud and John and Whitley all continued to make clear that they believed these beings to exist within the bounds of science, not in some realm of magic. They all held steadfast to the fact that they didn't actually know what was going on. They could only speculate, pull together memories to make coherent stories, make guesses about the bigger picture, and what it all means. You, Carl Sagan, scientist, astronomer, enlightened man, you think that indeed there may be some sort of intelligence out there? May, surely, surely may. It seems very hard to believe that uh, our paltry little planet is the only one that's inhabited. Carl was not an unbeliever. He had spent years trying to send signals out into space always open to receiving some kind of signal in return, but never believing anything he couldn't prove with unemotional evidence. The stories we've heard today are stories about seekers trying their hand at the great unknown, staring right at the great mystery, but still staring through their own eyes at the monsters and their intentions shape-shifting in the shadowy corners and then shining their lights. 
And though all these vastly different personalities often sparred intellectually side by side on paranormal documentary shows or at university conferences, they all seemed to know, they all seemed to appreciate that they were looking for the same thing. And it's the same thing I'm looking for, too. Whitley Schrieber had never wanted to be the poster child for alien abduction. And he never wanted his stories to be taken as literal, material fact. Quote, The media looked at them as descriptions of experience rather than descriptions of perception. There's a great deal of difference between the two. Whitley also echoed Carl Sagan's sentiment that what was important to figure out was whether these experiences were coming from outer space or from inner space. As Whitley wrote in Communion, quote, I suddenly realized that all my questions about whether or not my experiences were real were meaningless. Of course they were real. I had perceived them. A more accurate question was, what were they? For part two, we'll whittle away what we can about the phenomenon of alien abduction using the knowledge we have at our humble human disposal. And then we'll see what mystery is left. This was American Hysteria. Next time on the show, part two of Alien Abductions. That's next week. We'd like to thank all of our new patrons, and there is a lot of you. Thank you so much for contributing to our show, and we really hope you're liking the content we're putting out. If you would like some extra content, consider going to patreon.com slash American Hysteria and getting access to Hysteria Home Companion, which is hosted by me and producer Miranda Zickler, where we give you all the hottest gossip from the cutting room floor. And you better know, we're working on an episode right now all about celebrity alien abductions. And that will be out at the end of this series. We cover the drama behind the most notorious extreme haunted house in America. And then for self-esteem, we did a deep dive into the polyamorous cult of Ayn Rand. Plus, there's more bonus content you can access right now. That's patreon.com slash American Hysteria. Another great thing you can do for the show, seriously, it's very fast and easy, is give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also head to AmericanHysteria.com and get your hands on some of our fast-disappearing merch. You know you want to rep us. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Sound designed by Clear Camo Studios. Research and co-writing by Riley Smith. Co-produced and edited by Miranda Zickler. With voice acting from Will Rogers. Make sure you check out his hilarious paranormal podcast, Guide to the Unknown. So thanks, as always, for listening. And I just want you to know that I hate outer space. And I don't like talking about it. Have a great week.